Esther, the book of Esther. For those of you that are visiting, my name is Pastor Dennis Lewis, and we've been going through the book of Esther over the past few months, looking at the doctrine of divine providence. Uh, since the Advent season uh, was upon us, we focused a little bit more on the themes of the book that are most close to the Advent season. Themes uh, that we've covered so far is divine reversal, sin, peace, and today we'll look at the theme of joy, the theme of joy. And uh, we're going to look at some texts, we're going to bounce around a little bit and look at some texts that cover the theme of joy. Let's begin our reading in Esther chapter 8, verse number 15 through verse number 17. Now we'll go to Esther chapter 9, verse 18 through 32. Hear now the word of the Lord. Beginning at Esther chapter 8, verse 15 through 17. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many uh, many from the peoples and the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of Jews had fallen on them. Then beginning at uh, verse number 18. Uh, In fact, let's go up to verse number 17 of chapter 9. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. For the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feast and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns, hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of glad- for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned from them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, and they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them, for Haman the Agagite the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast her, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that this evil plan that, ha- that he had devised against the Jews should turn on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of that um, they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring 
and all who joined them without fail, they would keep the two days according to what was written, and the time was appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. All flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, indeed, as we come to this matter of joy, help our hearts to be filled with joy today because we are in you. Lord, we know that joy is elusive in our society today. And so we need a clear vision of what it is and why we need it. And so now, Father, it is my prayer that what we have not, you might give us. That what we ask not, you might teach us. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your blessed Holy Spirit, amen and amen. Recently, Theresa and I um, sat at our kitchen table, and we were stunned because uh, a well-known celebrity and entertainer had tragically taken their own life. What made this um, whole affair particularly stunning, at least for us, is that this celebrity and entertainer, on the surface, had everything that would make one happy. They had fame. They had money. They had a beautiful family. Um, he had three children. This man had tremendous talent. He had incredible personality. In fact, um, there were videos posted of him online um, dancing with his wife and having a good time. But in the midst of all of this, he was joyless and sad. So in a moment of weakness, he took his own life. Now, I tell you this story to illustrate an important point that I don't want any one of us to miss in here today. That in a society filled with pleasure and entertainment, there's a great lack of joy. You know, I don't know if you know this, but there's an endless supply in our society today of things that can entertain us. You name it. You know, um, my children have a lot of things that can entertain them. You and I have a lot of things that can entertain us. I mean, we could be on Netflix all day. We can go out and take walks. We can, we can go out and find endless sources of pleasure. But the one thing that you and I cannot find is joy, true joy, because the source of that comes from something else. You see, the things of this world were never meant to satisfy us that longing in our hearts for joy. How many of you, you know, I'm a parent, and, I, I, you know, every so often we'd be in the kitchen cooking for our children, and they're starving. And so uh, they come, and you hear the rustling of the chips. And what, what, as a good parent, what do you yell out? What do you yell out as a good parent? No, don't eat the chips. 
Why? Because it will ruin your appetite. Now, what, what are we trying to say? We're trying to say this. Is it true that our children can eat the chips? Absolutely they can. Would it be true that they'd be filled to some degree? But why is it that they don't, we don't want them to have these chips? It's because ultimately we know that the chips themselves are not nutritious. And the chips themselves cannot give them what they truly need, something nutritious. That it'll be severely lacking in that. The same thing is true with the pleasures of this world. They are insufficient source of our true joy. And the problem with the world that we live in today is that we have too many people walking around seeking joy and pleasure from a world that they cannot find ultimate joy in. Our world is more concerned with pleasure than it is with joy. But yet joy is at the heart of the Christian experience. And I would dare say that joy is at the heart of what it means to be human. All of us know the famous question and answer of the first catechism. What is the chief end of man? If I say, what is the chief end of man? What would you respond, congregation? Like good Presbyterians, right? Like good Presbyterians, we know the first question and answer. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That word enjoy is important. What the catechism is leading us to, to see and to believe is this, that you and I were created for joy, that we were created to be joyous people. However, what we find our joy in is important. Because if we were created for joy and made for joy and our hearts can only be satisfied with joy, the lack of true and proper joy becomes important. And if you doubt me that our society has a joy problem, look at the suicide rate in our society today. It's skyrocketing. It's skyrocketing. And so the message today is vital for this one reason, Christian, we have something that the world needs. And it's a true and rich source of joy that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And that's what this passage shows us today. That's what the whole Bible screams out. And I want to show you two things very briefly today that are so important. And the first is this, the source of our joy matters. And the second is this, the pursuit of our joy matters. The source of our joy matters and the pursuit of our joy matters. First of all, notice the source of our joy. Now, in some sense, uh, by the way, before I begin, in some sense, we can answer the question, what is the source of our joy? The source of our joy is the Sunday school answer. It is Jesus. But have you ever stopped for a moment and considered why Jesus is the source of our joy? See, it's one thing for us to give the source of, we could uh, give the Sunday school answer and say, the source of our joy is Jesus. We know that, yes, but why is that the case? Why is it that every time I stand up here or somebody else stands up here, we point you to Jesus? What is it about Jesus that makes him the ultimate source of joy? This passage actually t uh, tells us. Notice with me in uh, Esther chapter 8, verse 15 through verse number 17. 
The Bible uh, here teaches us something very important about the subject of joy and the source of our joy. It says this, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes and blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Now, pause for a moment. Why did the Jews have light and gladness and joy and honor? Why did they respond to Mordecai in this way? Now, if you read a lot of the scholars, the scholars will tell you the reason why they responded with joy and gladness and light and honor is because Mordecai is a Jew. Finally, they had another Jew in charge. But if you believe that, that's a mistake. To reduce what they feel in this moment simply on the basis of nationality is a huge mistake. No, that's not why they responded in joy. The reason why they responded in joy is because Mordecai is a picture of goodness. Mordecai is the true picture of goodness. Notice the description of Mordecai now. He's clothed in royal robes. He has a crown on top of his head. Finally in their lives, for the first time in their life, they had the ultimate source of goodness. Before that, they had Haman. And Haman was a source of of misery and pain to them. But at last now, they had someone who was righteous, someone who loved them and cared for them deeply, someone who was the ultimate source of good in their life. And as a result of having someone who is this ultimate source of good in their life, what happened to them? They burst out in joy. Imagine if the people of North Korea got a Christian as their leader. Do you think for a moment they would be joyful? Absolutely. Why? Because currently right now they have someone who is evil and who perpetrates evil against them. But if they got a Christian, someone who is a picture of goodness, they would rejoice. Because finally they have a source of joy. Uh, This brings me to an important definition of biblical joy. And it's given by Miroslav Volv, a Croatian theologian. By the way, if you ever want to study the topic of joy, I highly recommend you look into his writings. And here's what he says joy is. He says joy is an effective appreciation of something that we consider good. Don't miss how important that definition is. He's saying, in other words, for us to truly find joy, whatever it is that we want to find joy from has to be good. In and of itself, it has to be good. Otherwise, we cannot find joy in it. Let let me explain it this way. When I graduated seminary, I'll never forget this. I I got a job working at Chick-fil-A. It was a really good job, right? Now, most of you may know this, but Chick-fil-A is a Christian company. And no, they do not pay you to say my pleasure, right? You say it because it's just an awesome place to work. But I'll never forget, I was in uh, the out, the portion of Chick-fil-A where all the tables and chair is. And one of my jobs was I would wipe down the tables and chairs. And I was just singing to myself, wiping down the chairs, you know, asking people if they want their drinks refilled and throwing stuff away. And there was a woman uh, sitting down there, and she looked at me. And I had seen her several times inside there. She looked at me, and she said this. Why the expletive 
Right? She didn't say expletive. She actually used the four-letter word beginning with F. Are you so happy? I couldn't believe it. And then I looked at her, and I was shocked. She said, why are you so happy? And so I looked at her, and I said, well, why are you so sad? Now, maybe that wasn't the best thing for me to say to her, but come on. You know, like I was, I, I, I was, I was in shock. And so I said, why are you so unhappy? And she said this. She said, if you had my life, you would be unhappy as well. She said, you know, I have a, I have a crummy job. I'm struggling to raise my children. I, nothing is going well or right in my life. If you had my life, you'd be just like me. And I looked at her and I said, to some degree, I do have your life. I'm not making a great pay. I'm doing a menial task. I'm struggling to raise my children as well. And she looked at me and she says, well, what's different? And I said, Christ. Christ is the ultimate source of my joy. Now, look, I'd love to tell you that in that story, there was a happy ending. Because really, there wasn't. My whole time talking to her, the one thing she focused on over and over again was how if only she could get more money or a better job or be in a better relationship, how happy she would be. And what she was doing was focusing on the wrong source of joy. Jonathan Edwards has a brilliant um, illustration on this. He's, and by the way, he's called the theologian of joy for a reason. And here's what Jonathan Edwards says. She, he said, you and I are built to go to the source of a thing. Jonathan Edwards said this. He said, look, when mankind saw light, immediately they wanted to explore the source of light, which is the sun. When a man finds a, a stream, immediately we want to go and find the source of that stream. And, and you and I experience this as well. For those of you that love to read, I, I love to read. I, when I find a good book, I'm not content with just reading the book. I want to know about the author. For those of you that love music, you're not content with just listening to the music. You want to find out about the artist. Or if you watch a really good movie, are you just content with just seeing the artistry of the person in the movie? No, you want to know about that star. Each and every one of us inside here today, if we find something we're interested in, it's not enough that we find pleasure and joy in the thing. We want to go to the source of that thing. And Jonathan Edwards said this, if you and I are obsessed with the things of this world that bring us joy, we should stop and go back and consider what is the source of ultimate joy? What is it? If you and I see that we find joy in a thing, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the ultimate source of that? And that's what leads us back to Christ. Now, you might be sitting there and saying, well, Pastor Dennis, how do, I, how do I do this in a practical way, in a daily way in my life? Here's how. I'm glad you asked, by the way. Sir Isaac Watts one day was reflecting on the scriptures. And as he was reading Psalm 98, he was struck by the goodness of the reigning king. And Isaac Watts, as he read, saw that the holy and just king brought salvation to the whole world. 
And because of the goodness and power of this earthly king, everyone in the world should rejoice and be happy. And so he sat down and he penned a hymn. And the hymn says, joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Do you see what Watts did? Don't miss this. This is so important. When you and I read our Bibles, do we stop and reflect on the actual goodness of the Lord that we are being confronted with in the Scriptures? That's what Isaac Watts did. That's why you and I to this day cannot go an entire Christmas without singing joy to the world. Even secular artists sing joy to the world. Even though they don't know the source of that true and ultimate joy, why do they sing it? Because someone sat down and thought to themselves, how can I give expression to the goodness of my Savior as he's revealed in the world? That's what you and I are called to do, to respond to that goodness in some way, shape, or form. Because he's the source of all joy and goodness. We find our pleasure in him and him alone. Man, that's a glorious reality that we have in the scriptures. That's the first thing. Second thing, real quick. Joy must be cultivated. Now, look. When we talk about the cultivation of a thing, that, that becomes problematic, does it not? I mean, if you look at this text, notice that the Feast of Purim that was established was established for the purpose of them having joy. And if you notice, like, look at verse uh, chapter 9 and verse number 20. It said that uh, Mordecai recorded these things, and he sent it to the Jews in verse number 21, obligating them to keep the fourth day of the month of Adar. And then again in verse number 27, it said that these letters went out, and the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring. Then in verse number 31, if you drop down again, we see this word obligated. They were obligated to keep this feast of Purim that was supposed to be in an intentional time of joy. And we ask ourselves the question, why were they obligated to keep the um, this feast of Purim? And the simple answer is this, because our joy often fades. Our joy often fades. Hey, you know what? In, in about seven days, there will be... Uh, it's going to be Christmas Day, right? And we are having worship services, by the way, on Christmas Day. Um, I've already told my kids, you're not opening up your presents until after worship time, and so they'll be eager to be done with it, right? But what happens after you give someone a present on Christmas Day? I'll tell you what happens. They're, they're excited. They're joyful. And they receive this present, and then maybe for a few moments, or maybe for the day, or maybe for the week, or maybe for the month, they're happy and joyful over it. But what happens after a period of time? The joy fades. The joy fades. And so when the joy fades, what do we do? The fading of our joy reminds us, beloved, that you and I have to cultivate joy in our life. Because joy is often elusive. Now, what are the reasons why our joy fades? I'll give you three common reasons why our joy fades. And this is a universal principle. The first one, the first reason why our joy fades is because of sin. Because of the sin in our heart and the sin in our lives. 
Notice what David says in Psalm 51, verse 12. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Why is David asking God to restore unto him the joy of the salvation? Because, beloved, we often lose it. And we lose it because of sin. And if it was possible to live the Christian life without joy, do not miss it. If it was possible to live the Christian life without joy, David wouldn't have asked the Lord to restore it unto him. What does that tell us? The Christian life cannot be lived without joy. The Christian life cannot be lived without joy. We have to pursue it. We have to cultivate it. The second thing that steals our joy is trials. Things happen in our lives, and our joy is quickly taken away. That's why uh, in James it says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Why? Because trials steal our joy. They threaten to steal our joy. Something happens in us, and immediately we don't feel the joy that we have. And here's the third reason. Boredom and indifference. Now, this one I got from Keller. I was reading some of his writings on joy, and he's written quite a bit in this. And this one smacked me in the face. Boredom and indifference. And here's what Keller said. There's a sense in which all of us as Christians, if we've been Christian long enough, the joy of the Lord fades. The joy of the Lord fades. Because why? Well, we come to church every Sunday. We hear sermons. We sing songs. And after a while, if we're not careful, it doesn't excite us anymore. And Keller made the point that in those moments, we have to remember that we are commanded to be joyful. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. What is that? That's a command. That's a command. Now, everyone in this room will say, hey, don't commit adultery. That's a command. Don't lie. That's a command. Don't steal, that's a command. But how many of us realize that having joy is a command? By the way, how many of you have ever seen someone receive church discipline as a result of not being joyful? Now look, I've seen people receive church discipline as a result of adultery. I've seen people receive church discipline as a result of stealing from the church. But you know what I've never seen? I've never seen a Christian disciplined for not being joyful. And the reason why is because we live in a culture, I think, that de-emphasizes the role of joy in our lives. Joy is necessary and at the heart of being a Christian. Now, there's some of us in here today, we feel like the exiles of Psalm 137. You know the exiles of Psalm 137? They're being carried off into exile, and their captors are saying, hey, play the harp for us and rejoice for us. And they're saying, how could this possibly be? We can't rejoice. Look at all that's happening to us. That's how some of us feel. Pastor, if you know what's going on in my life, I can't rejoice. It's like like I'm in, in captivity, and God is saying, yes, you must be joyful. How can I rejoice if I'm in captivity? That's how we feel. And look, I get it. Look, I've been a Christian now for almost 20 years. It is difficult to keep my joy, even as a pastor. I have to daily fight for my joy. 
But I want to give you four verses, four or five verses that I use every day. That's good news to me when I feel like I'm losing my joy. And I want you to remember these verses because they will help you. I'm telling you, as a Christian, you have to fight for your joy. And here are the five verses that I use to fight for my joy. Number one, Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Now, listen to me. There are some of us, we read that and we think our joy for the Lord is our strength. That's not what that text is saying. That text is saying God's joy over us is our strength. Have you ever just sat down and thought to yourself that God rejoices over you? That he finds joy and pleasure in you? In the same way, when I take my children to uh, a park and I just watch them run around and have fun, and I just sit there and rejoice that they're healthy, God is in heaven right now looking down on you, rejoicing. Rejoicing over you. Man, that... That gives me joy, that he finds joy and pleasure in me. Here's the second verse. The fact in Luke 15, 7 through 10, that every time a sinner is saved, God rejoices. The angels of heaven rejoices. And here's a cool thing about that verse. They never stop rejoicing. We all focus on the portion where they rejoice when a sinner is saved. You know what the text says? The set, the, all, of the, all of the verbs in that text are present, active, continuous. What does that mean, Pastor? That means that they continue rejoicing even after your salvation. That the Lord continuously rejoices over you. The third thing that I realize is this. In Galatians 5, joy is a gift given at the moment of salvation. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. That when you get saved and when you get the Holy Spirit placed in you, you get the mechanism of pure joy put in you. That's a gift that God gives you. That's yours in Christ Jesus. The third is Psalm 1611, and I've said this to you all before, but here's, this is one of my favorite verses on joy. David says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. That when we go before the Lord in prayer, even though I don't feel like praying, even though prayer to me just feels yucky because I'm not in the mood for prayer. I know that when I do pray, just being in the presence of the Lord brings me some sort of joy. And here's the final one. Luke 10, 17 through 20. Jesus gives his disciples power over all the, angel, uh, over all the demons and they're healing people and they come back and they're rejoicing and they said, Jesus... Look at all the things that we've done in your name. And Jesus looks at them and says, do not rejoice that I've given you power over the angels, but rejoice because your name is written in heaven, in the book of life. Pause for a moment and ask yourself the question, when was the last time you rejoiced that your name is written in heaven? And that is a true source of joy. Man, you know, if my name was written in the history books, I would be rejoicing because to some degree that meant I made it. But do you realize that in scripture it says that our names are written in heaven and that is a source of joy for us. Christian, that's the source of our joy. Nothing in this world. And there's going to come times in all of our lives when our joy will be tested 
and the source of our joy will be tested. And we need to remember those five crucial things. Man, um, I'll say this one last thing. One of, one of the things that I love, now some of you, you see me come down um, when we're having the dinner, uh, sorry, the breakfast in the mornings, and you might wonder, you might say, well, why isn't pastor eating? Well, I don't eat before I preach, just so you know. Not because I'm nervous, but because if I do, like I'd probably throw up, right? You know, uh, preaching for me is a full contact sport. And so, you know, I, I kind of get, get going once I start. And, man, I'm always afraid that I'm going to throw up. But, but, but the reason why I do come, the reason why I do come is because one of the things I love about our church and one of the things I love about um, our community is I love to just come down and see you all rejoicing with one another. You know, my joy is just watching you happy, eating, and in fellowship with one another. That's, that's a true source of joy. That's why I come. I don't come for the food, because if I eat it, I'll throw up. But I come because I just love to see you all happy and eating and filled with joy. And to some degree, that's my happy place. And in life, all of us in this room need to find a happy place that has nothing to do with our pleasure. And the only thing that I could think of that it remains consistent is fixing our eyes on Jesus. Because when we do that, we receive the ultimate source of joy. And we can truly say joy to the world. Father, we thank you that you are the source of infinite joy and that ultimately we can find our joy in you. Oh, Lord, there's a sense in which joy is elusive. It, it's something that we can have now, but it's something that we will not have until we reach the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, help us as your people to be reminded of that reality. That you are the true source of joy. And our hearts will find no rest until they find its rest in you. Be with us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.